everybody, and welcome in to the I Want to Know podcast. I'm your host, Greg Jones, and I'm the one leading you on this inquisitive departure into audio wisdom. Tonight on the show, we have Philip Velitza, and like he told me, you say it like pizza, but we'll get to him in just a second. First, I want to thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for telling a friend, spreading the word about the show. It's been a great help because uh, you know us, we're broke. There's no budget over here. So keep telling your friends, IWantToKnowShow.com. And don't forget to click on that guest section. You'll find information about Philip, anybody else we've talked to, any of his links and anybody else's links. And if they're talking about books, we got books. Everything that we talk about can be found in the guest section at IWantToKnowShow.com. Also wanted to mention that tonight I am being joined by my lady friend, Shannon. Hello, Shannon. Hello. Thank you very much. I brought her on to talk about the product that she's looking to start. I figure... What better way to have a podcast than to have somebody who's actually looking to start the product with someone who uh, helps start products? It's a win-win for everybody. I think it'll be entertaining. Uh, so let's get right into that. My guest, or our guest tonight, is Philip Velitza. He's a first-generation immigrant after coming to the United States at the ripe old age of seven with just his mother. He's had quite the career and is now the founder of The Product Startup, which you can find at theproductstartup.com. It's a site that provides step-by-step blueprints to aspiring product creators wanting to bring their ideas to the market. Philip, thank you so much for joining the show tonight. Uh, thanks for having me, Greg. It's uh, it's my pleasure being on. Yeah, thank you. Uh, it's you know you have a, a great story as far as you know you did uh, mechanical engineering for so many years and you turned into this business and we'll get to that in a little bit. But first. I was very compelled by the human aspect of this story about you coming over to the country at the age of seven. Uh, can you tell us, you know, where did you come from? How did this all work? I can't even fathom moving to a totally different country, different language at the age of seven. Yeah, so I guess fortunately I was a kid at the time, and the way that my mom built it, it was more of an adventure. You know, I didn't think about it as seriously, and I think as as a kid you have that maybe I had a defense mechanism or maybe the way that she kind of sold it. It was, you know, it was just one big adventure. We, we left Czechoslovakia and at the time it was communist and you weren't allowed to leave. Mm. And so the, one of the requirements was that you had to leave a family member behind. And so we left, uh, my dad behind, but it just so turned out that, um, my parents were getting a divorce at the same time anyway. So it kind of worked out, I guess. Um, so yeah, so we, we, we left and, you know, on, on the way we're like sitting on the train platform and my mom asked an older gentleman to watch me while she gets tickets and she comes back and to find out that, uh, I told him this wild story about how we're moving to the U S and never coming back. And she was like, Oh yeah, your son has this wild imagination, you know? And, <laughs> and, and she tells me now and she kind of laughs, but back then if, um, you know, if you were caught leaving, it was basically a, a jailable offense for her um, because it was, you know, it was illegal to, to leave the country. So uh, we made our way down to Greece and we waited there for two years to wait for our, our paperwork to come to the States. We, you know, we were p- applying for a political asylum. Okay. And um, while we were doing that, um, you know, my mom was working two jobs and trying to kind of support herself in a foreign country and um, you know, I was making friends with the neighborhood kids who also probably didn't have a whole lot. And, um, I happened to run across a dumpster that had a toy truck sticking out of it. And it was one of these like Tyco multicolored trucks, um, that, you know, you have these oversized bolts and gears on it and things. And sure, yeah. one of the front wheels was missing on it. And, I found the wheel and somewhere else in the dump truck and, and jammed a, uh, an oversized bolt from something else in there and, and I quote, you know, fixed it myself. And, um, that, that opened up this huge feeling in me of like freedom and having the ability to control your own destiny and, and your environment. And, you know, it also like it made me like want to take other things apart. And, you know, so when we got to the States and, it, you know, we slowly, you know, mom was again working two jobs and I was the only child. So I was keeping myself busy by taking things apart and things that would probably be illegal today with, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, with child uh, uh, services and, and whatnot. Um, 
you know, I was happy to be alone and kind of figure how things worked. And, and I got heavily into like DIY stuff being the quote, the man of the house, I guess. Yeah. And, um, so yeah, I was like super hands on and super curious and super interested in things. And, um, I just found it freeing and that's why I pursued this mechanical engineering degree and why I enjoy it so much. I guess it all makes sense. When you guys came over, did you speak any English? Uh, no, mom did. Uh, you know, the, in central Europe, you had a really good education system and she had like a foundation of four different languages. Um, and so she knew it well enough that, you know, they learned it in school, but her degree was in art history. She renovated old castles and cathedrals along with my dad. Um, and so it wasn't anything kind of related. And for me, uh, I was fluent in Greek by that point. You know, as a kid, you learn just so quickly, like sure. a sponge. Um, but I had, you know, I had no clue. I went to ESL the next day. I started first grade and me and this one other kid were in ESL together. That's crazy. Did you guys, I mean, did you know anybody out here, any family, anything, relatives? Uh, no, uh, it was, you know, originally we had like friends of friends that were staying on the East coast and on the way to like the, literally on the flight, we found out that, uh, we wouldn't be going to the East coast anymore, that we had to stay on the flight and go to Indiana. And there was a small town, you know, it was in Goshen, um, where there was a church that had sponsored that wanted to sponsor a mother and her son. And so we stayed with, um, these farmers that was probably actually the best thing that could have happened to us because we were able to assimilate really quickly in a safer environment than a huge city. Um, so, <clears throat> excuse me. So six months later, uh, when we moved down to Houston or, you know, within the next year, mm-hmm. um, my mom was able to like, you know, get going with a, a job and, and, you know, do things on her own without, you know, having to, I mean, ask the you know most basic question, like, why is a penny bigger than a dime, but it's worth, <laughs> you know, it's worth less, you know, it's like the little things that you kind of take for granted. Yeah. You don't even realize that. And I guess that makes sense. You start off somewhere small and, and you know, it's not so overwhelming, like moving to somewhere bigger and then you can kind of work your way up. Uh, right. Absolutely. Yeah. So what, what was it that your mom decided to move out here to, to get out of the country? Uh, it was just an opportunity type thing. Uh, you know, the, there were a lot of things that were good in communism and I guess you can get in trouble for saying that, but (laughs) the, the, you know, the, the, the principles behind it were that, you know, education system was really good and the food that, you know, I got in daycare, for example, was probably the best, like even better than you can get in stores. Um, like they valued a lot of, things in terms of like, hey, if we invest in people, um, then, you know, this the country can prosper. And so there was, you know, of course, there's downsides with it. But, um, you know, and the other, of course, the downside was that you couldn't leave the country. And, sure. um, and there, were, there was a lot of cronyism in a way. And there was definitely some corruption um, that could probably continues to this day, even though the country is democratic, a lot of the people that used to belong to the party uh, switched hats and, you know, mm-hmm. when everything went private and they still kind of run the show, so to speak, but it's more on a capitalistic basis instead of, uh, you know, from a government perspective. And so, so that it really, it was just like the American dream, like literally like the freedom to do what you want to do and not be stuck in some small town, uh, pigeonholed into something. Yeah. What were some of the bigger challenges growing up in a new country? Uh, you know, I think for us, it was just not having looking back, you know, when I was a kid, I was frustrated with all the stupid things that I shouldn't have been frustrated with, you know, us not having enough money, um, looking at other kids that have more than you, uh, trying to be trying to fit in somehow, uh, definitely didn't fit in with the other white kids, even though I was white, but, um, you know, didn't, you know, didn't come from that same place. Certainly didn't fit in with some of the other kids that, you know, had different cultures because they had their own language and customs. Um, and then I didn't have any extended family or friends here. I mean, had some friends, but you know, no one that knew you didn't, you didn't have that, um, that support system. And I think that's, I think that was definitely the hardest part that I didn't know about, you know, that my mom kind of went through was knowing that if she made a mistake or if something went wrong, um, that was it. You know, you don't, you don't have anybody to catch you. Mm-hmm. 
So you, you guys came here, you grew up. Uh, where did you end up going to college? Uh, UT Austin. Okay, and how did I mean? How did you get into college? I'm, I'm guessing there wasn't a lot of money in the family, and no, you know, I was fortunate. Uh, so I went to a public high school that, um, you know, it wasn't great, but there were some really good teachers that cared a lot, and mm-hmm. uh, so my circle of friends were all people that I w- went to like honors classes, AP classes with, um, and uh, it was like a really supportive like friend environment that I had. And, um, so school was really important to me. Um, got mostly good grades. Um, (laughs) and what, you know, enough to get like a couple scholarships and definitely some, um, some subsidized loans because it was based on need. Um, so I basically went to school with, you know, some, I took on a lot of debt. Um, but at the same time it was all like interest, uh, fixed, debt that didn't really uh, accrue until I graduated. And so I was pretty fortunate. I mean, especially at the time, this was so 99 through 04, where the tuition, you know, now is probably almost doubled. Oh, if not more. Right. It's nice to hear stories of people who, you know, not just came over and and survived, but came over and, and thrived and and, you know, you, you kind of rolled up your sleeves and went to college and got it done. I mean, were you working jobs while you were in college? Uh, you know, I freelanced. I did, like, graphic design because I got into computers early as a kid. And, like, uh, for the people out there that are my age or older, like, MUDs, the, like, original massive multiplayer online game, except there were, like, no graphics. It was right. just, like, this text-based screen. So I was, like, a super, like, computer nerd. And... um stayed in my room all the time messing with computers and then, you know, leverage that to do like, you know, the basic HTML type web pages back when, you know, that was acceptable. And, um, (laughs) so it was, you know, I, I did some of that, but it was more for just like, uh, some money to offset some things, but I just took on a lot of debt. And I mean, I shouldn't say a lot, but it was, um, I ended up losing my scholarship part of the way through because I really like doubted whether engineering was right for me. And, um, I'm not like a classic student where, um, you know, I, I study and I do well in school. It was more like I studied like crazy and I would just get like mad test, test anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so either I got A's in classes that were like project based or hands on or like C's and D's because I would freak out on tests or I wouldn't do the work because it wasn't interesting because I couldn't see that connection to the real world like if it was super abstract and so i i basically stumbled my way through college you know i mean i did well enough to i think i had like a 299 when i graduated but that was like uh, between my sophomore and junior year i think i had less than a two wow yeah i i feel that pain i there's a lot of times when it's like why am i doing this work it's crap and you, you kind of have to really struggle to get through it and end up not doing half of it so i, I definitely feel that and i also i love uh, you doing web page stuff back when HTML was popular. I, I was the nerd in high school who knew some HTML coding and some Java stuff and people would give me, hey man, 20 bucks if you make me a website. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I'm sure you got a little bit of that from your friends. No, I wish. Uh, really? <laughs> they, you know, they, they called me Bob Vila because I worked on uh, on the houses a lot because, uh, you know, <laughs> D- DIY and that's kind of what I was into in high school. And uh and yeah, everyone else had a talent that was like a real talent. Like they were either like athletic or they were good with girls or, you know, things that you value as a 18 year old kid. Right. Um, and for me, it was none of that. It was like, you know, <laughs> like, like graphics. Like it was frustrating. That's funny. Um, one story I liked, I was reading your bio was you talked about how you got your first house right after college. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so uh, mom transitioned into being a realtor at some point because uh, her flexible was really, uh, sorry, her schedule was really flexible. Um, so she's able to pick me up from school and things like that. And um, yeah, so I graduated uh, college and eventually moved back to Houston. The last thing I wanted to do was work in oil and gas. Of course, ended up doing that anyway, uh, due to the economy and some other things. Plus, it's and, Texas. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. And, um, and so she, she spotted this house that was amazing and a, a open floor plan and like weird, like architecture for, you know, built being built in the early eighties. And, um, 
And she said, hey, you need to get it. But one thing, the bank won't give a loan for it. Um, so, and I think at the time it was around 70 or 80,000, um, and boarded up windows, like, like missing, like window panes. Um, I mean like sheetrock coming off the walls because it was like peeling and separating. Um, so yeah. And so I, I, you know, I'm really fortunate again to, you know, to have the friends that I had growing up where they're definitely all. Uh, I would say at least as successful or really they're all more successful than I am. And so I reached out to them and said, Hey, uh, can we, uh, can I get a loan from you guys? And they all chipped in like 10, 15,000 each. Um, and we did it, you know, we did all the paperwork and everything. Um, so between what mom and I brought to the table, plus what they brought, we bought the house cash, um, took probably two years to, fix it up after work, you know, from six to 10 o'clock at night, like literally like mom's like cutting tile with me or doing whatever. (laughs) And, uh, yeah. And, and so we got it to the point where it was livable. Uh, mom basically sold it to me so I could wrap it up into a loan. We paid the friends back and you know, the rest is history, I guess. That's awesome. I, you know, I live out here in California. There's no way I could get loans from my friends to buy a house because the cheapest house you can find is, you know, like $400,000. So that's, uh, that's really Yeah, cool. it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Hey, buddy, can I borrow eighty grand? It's no big deal, right? Yeah. Um, so you're, you went on and you were a mechanical engineer for 12 years. What sort of work does a mechanical engineer like you do? Yeah, so in especially in Houston and Texas, well, yeah, I should say in Houston, it's a lot of oil and gas stuff. There's we do have a medical, um, I guess, community that's sprung up in the last like five or ten years uh, as regarding the design and engineering. Uh, but in short, you kind of translate uh, what customers want in terms of an end product into requirements of some kind and specifications. And that could mean uh, sketching some things up and doing calculations and doing analysis on them to directing uh, designers or drafters to create, you know, the drawings for fabrication, uh, holding, you know, hand-holding that through manufacturing. And then when it comes back, doing some testing or even working with, depending on the company, you know, working with the guys to assemble the first units and test them and uh, make sure that they go out properly and maybe even troubleshoot them in the field. So you kind of see it through from concept to product. Yeah, absolutely. It's cradle to grave. And it depends on the company, but, you know, a lot of the companies that I work for, I work for like a mom and pop company where they had their own, you know, maybe 30 people that were working there in their own product line and they had manufacturing in-house and everything was kind of assembled in-house to some Fortune 50 companies that uh, are super segmented and you're doing like this tiny step of the process and um, but you go, you know, really deep with it. You're an expert in that. Very cool. So what is it? So you did that for a while and and you gave that up. What is it that you're doing now with uh, the product startup and the product startup.com? Yeah, I, I used gave that up really loosely. Um, so in, in, in June, uh, uh, we've had a downturn in the oil and gas market. And so and I was I had to lay off my team like one by one. And we were down to like two other people in the department. And, uh, and you know, it was one of these things that you see coming six months, uh, you know, a year ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I knew it was coming. And the you know, rest of the company got laid off. The company closed its doors. Uh, went bankrupt and um, yeah and that was at the end of June and I thought you know what Um, I want to pour more effort into the product startup because at this point um, the site was six months old and I had already started the podcast and everything Um, and I really enjoyed what I was doing Um, and I just want to you know so now I'm basically in the middle of seeing like how far I can take it uh, without having to uh, to go back to corporate Um, future employers close your ears (laughs) So uh, the company that closed, was that your company or a company you worked for? No, 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 no. It was a company that I was working for as an engineering manager, and uh, we had a small team of uh, engineers and designers that were working there. Okay. So how does your background translate into the, the product startup? Yeah, so um, people were would come up and ask me, you know, hey, how do I get on Shark Tank or um, – <laughs> how to how do i take this idea that i've had or that my grandfather's had and turn it into 
um, a real product that I can market and sell. And when my wife had our daughter about a year and a half ago, you know, sitting in the hospital, um, and up until this point, I've been playing around with all sorts of things entrepreneurial. And I say playing around because, you know, I did the business plan competition and I won some money, but it didn't pan out the risk, you know, the risk wasn't there. And so I didn't put a whole lot of money into it. And I've, I was always kind of bouncing around. Like I would love to be quote an entrepreneur. I would love to do these things, but I never really did anything because I was always waiting for the right idea. And so, you know, fast forward to, you know, I have this, you know, great career, six figure salary, making good money. It's very comfortable. Um, you know, we have our, our first kid and, uh, I'm in the, like in the hospital holding her and thinking, oh my God, I'm going to be, you know, 18, 18 years from now, she's going to go to college and I'm going to be regretful because I didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, you know what, I'm just going to run with this. I'm going to run with the product startup and, and just put like my thoughts down onto a page as a blog, um, and start the podcast after that and see where it goes. So I guess this begs the question, uh, how did your wife take that? I mean, she was super supportive. She's wow. very, uh, you know, I'm the analytical side of the relationship and she's certainly the, like the nurturing and like the, uh, she's a physical therapist. So she's, you oh, know, okay. she's very, uh, <laughs> very supportive. Um, she loves what she does, but, and she definitely doesn't do what she does for money. Um, you know, along the way, even though I loved being an engineer and I love doing things as you work your way through um, your career, and you might be familiar with this, once you start leading people, you get a bit more detached from the work that you're doing. And even though yeah. it's, it, it might be a lot of fun, um, and because you're amplifying your output, because if you, you know, if you have an amazing team, you're able to get like ridiculous amounts of work done. Absolutely. Um, you're, it's, you're leveraging like all these people to do just amazing work. But at the same time, I was kind of getting lost in the administration side of things. And, um, it wasn't as fulfilling. I was definitely like knuckling the steering wheel on the way to work in the morning. Like, what am I doing with my life? Like, like I would leave, come home exhausted because, you know, you spend your time in Excel and it's, <laughs> you feel like you didn't, I mean, for me, I did, cause I don't enjoy Excel enough to, to walk away like, oh yeah, that, you know, the world really benefited from my contribution today, you know? Um, <laughs> Yeah, I absolutely so, feel your pain. I mean, as as a guy who works in, in the TV industry, does a lot of creative things, as you get better at things, you start being in charge of people and teams and productions, and all of a sudden you find yourself in front of Microsoft Office a lot. And it's like, wait a minute, I should go back to getting paid less. Yeah, and that's the hard part, right? Is because so and I want to tie this in with my childhood real quick because please you know, growing up I saw my mom struggle where working in two jobs initially, um, seeing the stress that the lack of money caused, right? And so as I graduated and worked for different companies, I did this parallel thought process where, okay, I'm going to chase uh, bigger jobs that get me more money that are kind of in line with what I enjoy doing. I'm still doing engineering. And um, I justified it by saying, well, once you have the money, um, not that you're going to be happy, but you're at least going to be stress-free. Sure. And and all that was true. I, I actually got exactly what I wanted, right? Um, but but it wasn't enough. And you know, people say that you know, money isn't the secret to happiness. And then the retort to that is, well, people with money only make that comment. <laughs> um, and I, I totally agree with that. You know, I think living below your means and and being able to have that 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 cushion to where like our house was paid. And like we were going through, you know, the company was the company I worked at before was going through organizational changes. And, uh, you know, I was butting heads with a senior management and I thought, you know what, um, I'm OK with this. I'm going to just do what I think is right because I'm not going to live in fear anymore because you can't hold anything against me. You know, my, my mortgage is paid off. Yeah, that must be such a nice feeling. Well, and it was that, you know, that lack of stress and everything. And anyway, we're, we're getting off a different tangent, but you know, for any, everyone's that's listening, it's not sexy, but live below your means. It's like, so it's like living on a cloud, but it's sexy when you get a little older. Yeah. Yeah. I guess so. I'm 35. So it's like super sexy right now. Right. Yeah. When you're 22, <laughs> it's, it's a, uh, it's a total Sahara desert out there when you're, when you're doing that. But by the time you're in your thirties, that's the sexiest thing you can do. Right. Yeah. 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 
All right, so let's talk about the podcast a little bit. The product startup is also the name of the podcast. You've got some pretty cool guests on there. Brag a little bit, if you will. Uh, you know, I so it's not any names that you would probably recognize, uh, but definitely people that have been on Shark Tank and won some money, people that have been on Shark Tank and lost, people that uh, did, you know, huge $100,000 Kickstarter or people that did like series of little Kickstarters and started, you know, out of, um, a, you know, a bar on the East Coast, like just I I love what I do because I get to talk to people and every story is different and their route to success is different. And, you know, there's people that started selling their product for under two, five thousand dollars. They had a company and within a month or two, they were already selling product. Um, and it's just amazing to see people with no training specifically in developing products like these are people that previously were you know in marketers or they were doing something completely unrelated and they just like jumped into it because they saw an opportunity um and it's just to me it's super inspiring and i love talking to to people and i get really excited and and we geek out sometimes (laughs) it's nice talking to other successful people it just there's this kind of error error of uh you know you can you can get along even if you have nothing in common other than you have a great work ethic. You know, sometimes it's just nice to talk to those people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, and there's it, it's funny because you'll see the I talk to a couple guys that do everything themselves and they refuse to hand everything over. And a part of me identifies with that, you know, and then you talk mm-hmm. to the people that like outsource everything and, uh, you know, have this like crazy like strategy and uh, they're very top down. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I could totally get that. And so that to me that's why the the show is enjoyable is because you see these varied paths to success and you can probably find something in there that you can relate to yeah uh, before i turn it over uh one last question it it seems like for the most part you know you talked about coming over and, and the american dream and, and working hard and and you know surviving and making money and it seems like people just don't want to do that step of rolling up their sleeves and getting to work anymore uh, people, are, I don't know, call it entitlement, whatever it is. It's the way that, you know, just maybe the way that society is going. Have you seen that since coming over as an immigrant, watching your mom, like really struggle and work multiple jobs? Like, do you notice that people aren't as willing to work anymore? Yeah. Uh, you know, that's a loaded question because, um, <laughs> yeah, I used to think that my work ethic that I got from my mom was my strongest asset. I'm not as sure about that as I used to be <laughs> because of what you say, uh, because there's definitely, uh, you know, working smarter than versus harder, sure. you know, and, um, a lot of the times I think that maybe I try to brute force some things instead of, um, you know, and gosh, I mean, we could talk about this forever, but, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I think I agree with what you're saying. I think it's, Definitely as a manager, when I would hire people and I would I would interview other engineers and ask them about their experiences with things, it was really hard to find people that um, rolled their sleeves up and were, you know, wanted to do, uh, you know, basically wanted to make the mistakes so that they would get the experience. Um, most people, I think, are content on um, just like copying what is done or um, – you know, following uh, what other people do, or kind sure. of t- you know shooting from their back pocket, so to speak. Um, and I just say that from an engineering standpoint, you know. And I think definitely, if you go online a lot and you look at social media and you see all these other people that are quote successful, um, which they may or may not be, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and saying how uh, they got all this money with this little effort, um, you know, how much of that is true? I don't know, but <laughs> um, it's hard for sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right. At this point, I'm going to kind of turn things over a little bit. Uh, my girlfriend Shannon here, she has a product that she's trying to, uh, you know, push out into an actual business. And I thought, what better way to talk to somebody who works on products than to have somebody who wants to turn out a product. So, uh, Shannon, welcome. Thank Cozy you. on up to that microphone there uh, and ask away. Okay. So um, I started making uh, baby cakes, I guess you can call them diaper cakes, and bridal shower cakes for friends a few years ago. And I am I am a creative person. So um, I kind of come at this from a creative uh, point of view. 
Mm-hmm. And um, so it was just something that I wanted to make. I thought it would be a fun gift. And uh, as I started to make them, more and more people came to me and said, you should be selling these. They're amazing. You know, they're always the hit of the party. You walk in with one of those and it's sort of a showstopper. And um, so I have started um, offering them for sale. But I really have kind of no concept on on the business side um, of how to get started and how to, you know, from things like social media to picking price points. And with each cake that I make, it's custom made. So I have difficulties when I'm talking with um, prospective customers, giving them an idea of how much something is going to cost because there are things that can be hidden inside the cake. Um, They can have additional uh, kind of, I call it icing on the outside of the cake. Yeah, they're very customizable. Yeah. So, um, I am having kind of trouble with the business side. You know, the creative side of me is like, you know, oh, you want a giraffe theme, no problem. But mm-hmm. on the business aspect, I am sort of at a loss for where to start. And, um, you know, I don't know if there's a magic formula for picking your pricing. I'll actually take a step back a little bit. Do you know who your audience is? And what I mean by that is, do you know, have you mapped out maybe the two or three different people that you could target very specifically to say this age group, uh, excuse me, typically has this type of hobbies, um, you know, demographics, everything. I would say that I haven't thought deeply into that, but it is something that I'm very aware of. I know that, um, you know, because of the cost of items that go into the cake, baby items are very expensive. Um, It sort of puts you at a price point that is above the standard registry item that, you know, a a normal uh, attendee might pay. Um, So when I think about it, I think of it as being like, if you're talking about a baby shower, it would be the, the grandmother or an aunt or um, someone who's probably middle-aged a little, has a little bit more expendable income um, Mm -hmm. because they are a larger gift and they are a showstopper. And it tends to be that the grandmother wants to have the best gift or the aunt wants to have this amazing gift that everybody talks about throughout the party. Great. Yeah. So, and I was, that was actually going to be my suggestion is because we, we had a diaper cake for our daughter or we, we received one as a gift. Um, so I'm familiar with what you're saying. Um, so it's good. I think you've got a, a good enough, uh, sense of your audience. I think, you know, maybe one thing to do is to, after this call is you can kind of like spell out exactly what your target is because that's going to definitely help you to market to them like you're going in if it's going to be the grandmother it needs to be you're going to have a unique way of marketing to her versus maybe an aunt that's that's a generation younger versus uh you know a wealthy friend or you know who might be your third option and you know what they read where they hang out what you know tv show they watch um you know down to that granularity um only because that again that's going to help you craft your message um, down to, you know, hashtags, down to the interest level on Facebook when you select, um, you know, if you're going to start doing ads and things like that that are local. Um, so I, I would say that's for anybody out there that's doing a product, nailing down your audience is the like number one thing to do once you get the idea. Um, cause, and people will usually skip past that and get to the prototype and selling stage and then they try to market and they end up spending a ton of money because they're kind of like spraying it like a shotgun, so to speak. So how do you, how do you determine the, how to price? I mean, I know that, you, you know, they're more expensive items and there's a certain amount of, well, you look at the cost of the items and the labor that goes into making it. Um, but you know, how do you feel out the the marketplace for how much you could charge for that item? Yeah, I think that's a soft skill based on, you know, when you're speaking to people and their reaction. Um, that's one way of doing it is having conversations and saying this is what it really goes for. And if their eyes get big like saucers, then maybe you've overreached. Um, but, okay. <laughs> right. But yeah. um, bec- uh, you, what you what you do want to focus on is pricing on the value 
and not the raw materials and the work that you're putting in. So, um, so what I'm saying is price top down, as in the benefits that you're selling, not bottom up, which is materials plus labor plus, you know, whatever your, your fees are. Okay. Um, uh, because, uh, you can easily get into a race to the bottom with pricing from the bottom up with other people that are also going to just try to make a cake for $2 less than you. And that's not the conversation that you want to have. You want to talk about the experience. You want to talk about how amazing the cake is and what kind of impression it makes and, um, how yours is so unique and custom uh, the price shouldn't almost come into it until, in my opinion, close to the end of it. Um, and the way that I would handle it is that you might come up with two or three cakes at different price points um, and throw out a middle cake whenever you're talking to somebody. And if they're really comfortable with it, then you can say, well, and then there's this also this really like amazing deluxe you know, with all the bells and whistles for this. And, you know, I know things are custom, but you can at least start to paint the picture to say, well, with this deluxe cake, it comes with these things and I'm happy to change it out for something else at, you know, at no charge. And this is the one thing that's extra or, you know, you can kind of play around with it. But I would definitely throw out some numbers in the beginning, because if you if you wait to have this conversation with them about it being a custom product, it's going to be, I think it's going to be a little bit harder to close the sale. Right. So you're suggesting more of like a baseline price. And then if they want to add additional items, the price would go up from there. Yeah, something something like that. And you might have the middle cake that has some of those items already. And that, the only reason I say start out in the middle is then you can kind of read the person. And if their body language suggests that like, like it might be too much for them, you can kind of downgrade the sale to the lower one during the conversation or, you know, whatever it is, you might have a lookbook or a PDF of some kind that you sent to them and say, here's all the cakes in this price range. And then here's the second tier of cakes that I've made or, uh, just to kind of give them an idea. So they don't feel like they're boxing themselves into this like $300 cake or, uh, you know, again, I don't know how much they are, but, um, you know, just to kind of give them a, an anchor, so to speak. And your anchor should be in the middle. Um, I think, that way, uh, you know, people because people always show like three price points, for example, and you'll have a, a low, middle, high, and the high might be um, only there just to make the middle look affordable. Oh, okay. Interesting. And I'm not saying to do that intentionally, but I've seen that done a lot where you might not want to sell the really crazy like $500 cake, but all of a sudden your $120 cake looks awesome. Right. <laughs> <laughs> all of a sudden everyone can afford that. Right, right. So um, that, that's just another way of kind of approaching it. You know, pricing is definitely very hard because it's all based on it is all based on what people will pay, and it, and that means like know your audience and know like uh, you know are these people the type of people that would actually ever make their own cake? Because in that case, the price might not be as high as you know the people that never make anything and sure. right, you know. That makes a lot of sense. And it sounds like you're saying a lot of uh, when it goes to pricing, you said start at the top, work your way, you know, that way. It's very much like tug at those emotional heartstrings. Yeah. Well, so for it, you know, from an engineering perspective, we want to sell the benefits, um, not the specifications, right? So you sure. go to the ca- camera store and you buy a, a two gigabyte or, you know, 10 gigabyte card for your uh, SD card for your camera. Uh, and at some point they were selling them as 10 and then they were switched over to 10,000 photos, right? Um, and so that translated the specifications to the benefits as a consumer. Um, and a, qu- a quick way of testing that is what is this specification and how, what does that help me do? So, you know, 10 gig- gigabyte card so that and then that's going to be your benefit so that I can have a lot of photos or, or store a lot of video or whatever. And so – like you said, focus on the experience, on the emotion, on the, you know, the uniqueness of it, definitely, because this is a handmade product. Um, this is not something that you can buy anywhere else. Focus on that. Um, all the things that you think are a detractor, they're actually a positive. Um, 
So, you know, hmm. in my opinion, you know, you, because you don't, what you don't want to do is get into this battle where you're competing against anything else that you can buy on an online store that's ready to ship that has no customization. Right. Right. That's the last comparison that you want to get into. So in order to stay away from that, you basically sell all the things that they cannot get anywhere else. And I have to sort of get out of my own head because I come at it from the point of view of someone who can make this, you know, whereas my prospective client, it's not something that they could make themselves or they wouldn't be buying it, you know? Oh, absolutely. And I'm the, I'm the worst person for this as well. And that's why I say you really need to have – no, because I'm a huge DIY guy. And the things that even my close friends pay money for, I wouldn't ever pay money for because I could make it myself. Sure. Right. Um, so uh, that's really why you need to have um, – I mean it pays to have good relationships with your customers – mm-hmm. uh, and, and to be friendly. And that's another selling point too is that you're not – it's just some dot com that's going to drop something off at the door. You might be hand delivering it. You're, uh, you care about the the whole experience, and maybe there's you know there's a, you're, you're presenting it in a certain way. Maybe you're even unveiling it, or you put something over it. So there's like it's more of a surprise. Like think of it as an experience. Yeah, that's very interesting. All right. Um, Anything else from you over there? I do. I okay. Have a, I have a couple more questions. Um, so. When you're talking about having an idea of your audience, um, do you suggest like kind of networking with friends to sort of see what they think of the product and what um, what they would be willing to pay? Do you think that I need to kind of reach out to uh, maybe people I don't know? Yeah, I think it stinks, but you need to reach out to people you don't know. Um, <laughs> because your friends will lie to you and so will your family in an effort to be nice to you or to protect you or to support you when they should, you know, instead of giving you constructive criticism, they'll just give you like unconditional support. <laughs> so, um <clears throat> I I would, you know, in my opinion, talk to 15 to 25 people and it might mean setting up a table in front of somewhere where there's going to be you know, your target demographic is um, or it might just mean casually networking friends of friends um, who you know or you know family members of friends that you know are having a, a baby and just having open discussions with them and say hey I, I make these cakes and this is the type of product and um, you know and you'll get some feedback and you're going to you might strike out with a couple conversations because you might come in too high but the worst thing you can do is come in really low and then you work yourself down to the bone and um, you realize that you're making, you know, $5 an hour. Right. <laughs> Slave wages. Yeah. I mean, if you would really enjoy it and it, it, it's a hobby for you, then, you know, that's a different story. But I assume this is a business. So. Right. Absolutely. Um, so my next set of questions is, you know, I'm sort of torn between uh, how to develop my online social media presence. So I have created a website and um, I have all of the social media accounts, but I don't really know where I should put my focus. What is important when you're talking about uh, a small business and a product that you want to sell? You know, if, uh, you know, you should have a website and Facebook and Instagram and, you know, you should be posting every day. And all, while all of that sounds great, it's really difficult to know where to get started with that. So yeah, what would so, be your points? Yeah, that goes back to who is the demographic that's going to buy from you. And it, it really narrowed it down to like maybe one or two people. So it might be – and it's a little bit challenging for you because it might be the grandmother and the aunt, in which case um, they may or may not use social media. Uh, and if they do, it might be Facebook uh, obviously they probably won't be using Twitter right. um, or Snapchat. Um, <laughs> right. And, uh, or, uh, I would say maybe Pinterest, um, because that <sighs> women demographic is really high on Pinterest, but, um, I would tailor you, the social media that you use to your demographic and you could find those, um, you know, correlations online. Right. I'm going to sus- uh, suspect it's going to be Facebook and or Pinterest or uh, maybe Instagram. And the only reason I call that out is because you may actually get some pull through business there. 
you post it's only photo based and there might be people on Instagram that are the daughters or the granddaughters of your client base that may I don't know may help encourage a sale there or may uh, say hey I really want this for my kid when I have a um, you know a shower right uh, so and I'm sort of I guess I would be relying more on word of mouth in that instance you know because you're you're relying on the younger demographic to tr- to give the information to the demographic I'm trying to reach. Yeah, it's really hard that way. That's why I would, I would, I've, my instinct, and this would, you need to test this, is um, I would go on Facebook first and maybe uh, Pinterest. And the nice thing is that if, you, if you're on Pinterest and you're posting photos, it doesn't take you much more time to post the same photo on Instagram. Um, because the media is the same mm-hmm. and you can't really post a whole ton of text. There's no text on Instagram and there's like a small blurb on, on Pinterest. So, um, I would focus on Facebook, especially because you can do some really targeted stuff and like join Facebook groups, um, mm-hmm. where your target audience might hang out. And that's not, um, necessarily like a baby group. It's might be like grandma's um, that like to party. <laughs> yeah, or you know, um, oh gosh, like a quilting group, or you know, and I hate to be like stereotypical, but it, you know, it might be something where your target market is hanging out at. And I would focus on maybe on one, maybe two social media channels in the beginning, and um, and don't worry about the rest. And, and and that's something again to test when you're having that conversation. It's a casual conversation between other aunts that you know, other grandmothers that you know to say, hey, do you use the computer? Are you on social <laughs> media? Uh, when you're on the internet, what type of stuff do you look at? Where do you go? Um, and you can always ask those types of questions even if they're not people that are going to be buying a cake from you, but they're, they just happen to match the audience that you're going for. Okay. And would you suggest that um, I have my pages developed? Like, there's a lot of inform, like a lot of pictures already on the page, or like, do I need to really build up kind of the base of that page before I start linking to things? Or as long as I have a few pictures and I post something every once in a while, it's okay? Or do I need to, you know, I I get weighed down of like, where do I begin? No, I would just begin. I mean, I, you know, you throw up, in my opinion, in, in this order, you throw up a website with your essential, you know, six, seven pages, which is like your about page, contact page, um, you know, front page and, and some photos and everything. And then you get a social media account or two set up and post a couple things and that's it. And then you just go organically from there. Okay. Um, awesome. And yeah, and you just kind of grow it naturally and get your friends to join, especially past clients that were sa- satisfied with your stuff. Uh, make sure to reach out to them and say, please like the page, please comment on the stuff. Uh, please, you know what? Please give me a testimonial. Um, and that way you could put it up on your web website um, with the person's photo if you can, or at least mm-hmm. just a quote with a picture of the cake. Um, and you know, if you're going to be doing this in multi-city, you can even put in the town or the city that they're you know from, and, and to show how happy people are. And if you can get like five testimonials that then you can leave on their site, you can repurpose that for social media. Um, uh, that peer like approval is just goes a long way. Awesome. Yeah, people tend to trust other people. I guess that's why Yelp is so popular. Yeah, it's the long line outside the club that you drive by and then you get in the club and it's empty and you're like, whoa, I trusted the line. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Uh, This this made me think of a question. Um, What's the biggest hurdle that you find for people trying to bring a product to market? Uh, Besides not having their audience narrowed down and um, (laughs) yeah, and not like solving a problem. Because a lot of times people will say, hey, I have this great idea. I'm going to go make the solution for it. And then all of a sudden no one buys because, well, they didn't really have that problem or they weren't. it wasn't um, painful enough for them to pull out their wallet for, you know? Right. Absolutely. That's funny. Uh, once again, the website, theproductstartup.com, as well as the podcast and at iwantanoshow.com, you click on that guest link. I'll have links to everything you can 
ever, ever need to find uh, Philip Belitza. Did I get that right? Yes, sir. Oh, fantastic. I've been, I've been worried about having to say that again at the end. <laughs> say it at the beginning when you freshly told me how to say it. It's no problem. Wait, a, wait 45 minutes and all of a sudden it hurts. Uh, anyway, so make sure you check him out. Check out the podcast and everything else. Uh, Philip, thank you so much for taking the time and, and for humoring uh, our little idea over here. No, it was awesome. It was a lot of fun. You know what? I'd love to be on the show again next time you guys uh, you know, feel like you want to entertain me talking for 50 minutes. Um, <laughs> thanks for having me on the show, Greg. Really appreciate it. I really appreciate it, man. Thank you very much. Thank you once again to Philip Valitza for joining the show. If you want to find out more about him or if you have a product that you might want to get started up or you want to listen to the podcast, theproductstartup.com. That's where you find him. And you can find all the social media links there. And if you can't remember that, just remember IWantToKnowShow.com. You can click on the guest section. Everything you need to find Philip will be right there. I also want to thank Shannon for hanging out, for asking some questions. Thank you very much. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Good. Uh, if people want to find the cakes that were mentioned on the show, where do they go? It's called Too Good to Eat Cakes. The website is toogoodtoeat.com. And the second two is the number. Very nice. And she's on social media. You can connect with them all there on her website, toogoodtoeat.com. And uh, one thing I forgot to mention, after we finished the show, Philip was uh, very nice and hung out for a while and answered even more questions and, and got really excited about it. So uh, I think he's definitely the guy to go to. If you have a physical product that you want to launch, I think uh, he can help you out. So check him out, theproductstartup.com. Check us out. Check out the I Want to Know podcast at iwanttoknowshow.com. You can listen. You can find all our social medias. And you can uh, check out the guest section, which has Philip's information and every other guest we've had in the past as well. And uh, don't forget to connect with us on social medias at I Want to Know Show on Twitter, Facebook.com slash I Want to Know Show. On Instagram now, I Want to Know Show on there. And uh, I Want to Know Pod at gmail.com. You got a show suggestion or maybe a question you want me to ask somebody, feel free to email the show anything you got. And uh, one last thing, if you like craft beer, you should check out the Unfiltered Gentleman. Uh, I'll warn you, it's a very different show. But if you're into craft beer, I think it's the show for you. You should check it out, the Unfiltered Gentleman. Anyways, that's all I got for you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for spreading the good word and fighting the good fight. And on that note, good night, everybody. Good night, everybody.